This is Amber, and you're listening to Amber on Podcast. Hi, hi, hi. Welcome to episode number 11 of Amber on Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am very excited to bring you a story, an origin story from one of my favorite podcasts. I've mentioned this podcast before. The name of it is How I Built This, and it's hosted by Guy Raz. This is another NPR podcast. Guy Raz is the dopest pod host in the game. I've said it before. I will say it again. He also hosts the TED Radio Hour, which I've covered a couple times at this point on this show, and you will definitely hear more from the TED Radio Hour and from how I built this going forward. This story is so dope. I I have to say, when I heard it, I was so taken aback. It's like a Disney movie, a Disney movie that would be better than the Mighty Ducks. It's a really great origin story about how a guy took a toy and turned it into an Olympic sport. So let's start the show. First things first, I'm a little under the weather, so I apologize that I'm a little, little bit hoarse and squeaky today, but that's not going to keep me from sharing with you this story about a really great guy who, as I mentioned before, he took a toy and turned it into an Olympic sport. Now, I really, really love origin stories because if I'm having a hard time or I'm lacking direction, I'm confused, I'm feeling alone, I'm feeling like everything that I'm working towards is for naught, and I'm having a really hard time, I like to listen to these stories and find out exactly what other people people have gone through in order to have these huge companies and these great accomplishments and huge successes. And oftentimes, more than not, it's something very similar to what I'm feeling myself, or in this case, something much, much, much more severe that they've still managed to overcome and still managed to achieve their dreams. And I believe it's these origin stories that are really the most inspiring to us all and make the great move, the greatest movies. I mentioned it should be a Disney movie, this story, and make the greatest books because they're really, really inspiring and they put us in touch with other people and and how they've achieved all the great things in their lives and just make us feel more at home and make us feel like we have a tribe, which ultimately is, is all we want in this life is to have a tribe and a group of people we can relate to and, um, and aspire to be like. And Jake Carpenter is definitely someone who we can all aspire to be like. Jake Carpenter invented Burton snowboards. But before I get to all of that, I want to give you a little backstory on snowboards and how he came up with the idea for the snowboard snowboard to begin with. In 1966, there was a toy. This toy was called the Snurfer, S-N-U-R-F-E-R. And the idea of the Snurfer was that it would allow you to surf on snow, which before 1966, nobody was doing that. It was not an idea. And the Snurfer is shaped like a skateboard. It has a little bit of a pointy toe, pointed tip with a rope attached so you can hang on and kind of steer the the Snurfer down the hill. The toy manufacturer, they sell about 800,000 of these Snurfers in 1966 and a few years after. Jake Carpenter was a kid at this time, and he loved his Snurfer. Him and his friends, they would take these Snurfers out. They would kind of modify them. They would come up with different tricks and have different competitions. And he just really always saw it as a great sport and really believed that one day there would be like professional snurfers. The snurfers are really great too because they gave people an option outside of expensive ski resorts. So it was sort of posed as the the poor man's snow sport, so to speak. If you couldn't afford to get all the equipment and go to the ski resort, you could easily buy a snurfer and still have a good time in the snow, which is a lovely, accessible 
idea. Now, when Jake is growing up, he's using this snurfer. He loves this snurfer. He's 13 years old when his older brother dies in Vietnam. And he's really heartbroken by this. And it's really, really difficult for him to, to deal with the death of his brothers. His brother was so young. I think he was about 19 years old. His mother, Jake's mother, soon dies after that, only a few years later. So here he is. He's a young teenager, 15, 16, 17, somewhere around there. And he gets kicked out of his boarding school. His father comes to pick him up and take him home. They discuss some matters and then end up end up taking him. He ends up taking him on a five-hour drive back to the boarding school to talk to the headmaster. Jake's father does. And this headmaster is the same headmaster that had been there when his father was in school at the same boarding school and also his brother, who's now dead. And keep in mind, Jake's father is also dead now as well. So I can imagine this is a crazy time, you know, for the poor father, poor Jake. They end up going back home after they talk to the headmaster and he's not going to be allowed back at school. He'd been expelled. And he's decided at that moment that from for the rest of his life, he's going to make sure that he really applies himself and make sure that what he does actually matters and it counts. I think this is something that a lot of people go through, actually, when they've had a lot of loss. You kind of throw, the, you know, the shit to the wind. You're like, oh, fuck it. You know, what is life? I don't care. Nothing to live for, necessarily. And some people don't always snap back from that. Um, some people kind of always stay in that state, and they always stay with the loss, and they always stay with the hurt of, of the trauma that's that's happened to them. And sometimes people can kind of snap out of it and realize that there's much, much more life to be lived and a lot to live for. And they're able to bounce back and really apply themselves in another area and, and really start to work to gain their passion for life back. And lucky for us, that's what Jay Carpenter did. He, When he got back home, he's from Vermont. When he, when he got back home, he started a small landscaping business. He went to college, and then he ended up working for an investor in Manhattan. He is working as an investor for the investor, and he's remembering his fun that he had with the snurfer as a kid. And what I really love about this, him remembering that he loved the snurfer, and then he decides that he wants to make the snurfer happen again. He's like, I know this could be a sport. I really enjoyed it. I don't see them. They're not manufacturing them anymore. I really love this. I want to make it happen again. So he figures that he can make, you know, 50 50 snurfers, modified snurfers a day and make $100,000 a year. He's like, that sounds pretty good to me. Decides to call it a snowboard, however. Hooray. Thank God we get to lose that lame name because it's so weird. They they have a website, by the way, snurfer.com. It's totally worth looking at. You should definitely check it out. But what I love about about Jake Carpenter thinking of the thing that he loved when he was a kid and then, you know, ending up developing a, a community and an organization and a business around that is that I often hear from really, really talented people. They say that if you want to find your passion in life, often where you need to look is what you were doing when you were ages six to maybe 12 or 14 years old. What did you do in your free time as a kid that you love doing? A lot of the time, that's the same thing you're going to be, you're going to love doing as an adult. And, and it's easy to to find your pa- passion if you start to look down that path, which is also true for, for Jake, of course. So Jake's in Manhattan. He's working for this investor and he's making these surfboards. He's just kind of chiseling them down out of wood in his apartment in Manhattan, he soon realizes that's not the best place to be manufacturing snowboards. So he goes back to Vermont in order to start figuring out exactly right, what the right design needs to be in order for this to work. Now, keep in mind, he's modeling this off of a toy with the rope at the front that looks like, uh, it kind of looks like a big collar stay. If you know them things that men, men use in their shirts to keep the collars pointy, it's like has a little pointed top and then the base is rounded. It's like a skateboard with a pointy head, essentially. So he gets back to Vermont 
and he happens to inherit a fairly large amount of money. You know, his grandmother dies, and she had a little bit of money, and so she he gets some inheritance that would have gone to his mother. But since his mother is dead, he he and his sisters get the money, and it's around two hundred thousand dollars. He takes a hundred thousand dollars of this, and he invests it in Burton snowboards. Why is it called Burton snowboards? Well, his middle name is Burton, and he his original idea was for it to be Burton boards, which just is a lot more catchy catchier than you know Jake Burton boards or carpenter boards. That sounds really horrific, actually. So Burton boards was the way to go, and I think that's great. Now it took Jake about two years to actually get the prototype right. He makes a hundred prototypes, and one of which is he actually goes down to California and goes to these surfboard shops and surfboard manufacturers and ends up whittling down a surfboard and turning it into a snowboard. So if you can imagine, but all different wood, all different laminates. He's doing all these different prototypes. And then finally, in June of 1978, he has the final design, the final board that they're ready to go and start production with. So he starts production. He starts running advertisements. Jake is basically just a traveling salesman. And he's trying to sell these boards, but nobody knows what the fuck they are. They're like, what, you're surfing on snow? Nobody had ever seen this before. So people were a little taken aback, but there was still a pretty large community of people who use the snurfer and love the snurfer. And so he had a really, really great youth following. Even though nothing caught on much in the first year, he did have some some stronghold with the youth culture, and there was some were some young people that were really interested in it. The first year, he sells 300 snowboards. The second year, he sells 700 snowboards. And get this, it doubled like that for the next 20 years. Can you believe that? That's amazing. So he starts catching catching on. Snowboards are a thing. Kids love them. It's looked at the same way a snurfer was as an alternative to going to the ski resort. It's, in fact, a low-cost alternative to the ski resort. And it's an alternative to ski resorts because you couldn't even use the snowboards at ski resorts. They didn't allow them. They didn't allow them for quite, quite some time. I think it's almost 10 to 12 years after 1978 where he put them into production and was doing all of this that they actually even allow them to, to take them into the ski resorts. More on that in a bit. I think the coolest thing about this is that, again, it is, it is driven by the youth culture. So kids, when they find something that they like, I mean, it's it's always going to be marketable, right? Even before the days of Facebook and Snapchat and all these different things where you have all these different advertising opp- opportunities and kids sharing what they're using, still back in the day, you know, a Polly Pocket, a skateboard or whatever, if you see a cool kid doing something cool, you're naturally going to want that. And so that was really what was driving what was driving his business. Now, in 19, like the late 1980s, Time Magazine calls snowboarding the worst sport ever. They actually call it the worst new sport, which if either way is still the worst thing to be called by Time Magazine. It's not very nice. And Jake is over here thinking like, okay, okay, well, we're still having a great time. The ski resorts won't accept us. So we're just kind of like this rebellious, you know, snow sport that nobody respects or is taking seriously. Eventually, some of the ski companies start to catch on. And no, mind you, he, Jake was thinking this entire time, he's like, oh, eventually these ski companies are going to come in and just com- completely plumb in my business and pummel my business. And nothing's going to go well after it because they're going to take, you know, they're going to have a much more cost-effective way to produce these things I'm not going to keep up with. They come in and decide to start compete with me. But that day never comes. Or when it does come, it actually comes too late. Slowly, eventually, the ski resorts start to allow them to have snowboards at the resorts. They do some lobbying. They get some of the owner's kids to help them. And slowly, they start to accept the snowboards at the ski resorts. Now, the reason they were so hesitant to do this is because the ski resort, there was a big ski resort that had a big settlement with a guy who ran into a sign and ended up ski- suing the ski resort for half a million 
million. But the settlement actually paid him out $1 million. So they were really gun-shy. You know, there were, li- there were liabilities and things like that they were concerned about. Um, they were just really, really paranoid, essentially. By the time the ski resorts actually came around, is the same time that the ski companies started to come around. But by then, they were really too late. Now, there's one thing that I do recall about snowboarding. And it's when I was growing up, when I was a kid, I remember my friends going off to ski and they're, them coming back and telling me, because I never went when I was a kid. My parents didn't do that kind of bougie stuff. But they would come back and tell me, or my friends at college would come back and tell me, you know, it was very like divisive. Are you a skier or a snowboarder? And skiers are this and snowboarders are that. And it was very much like, you know, the sharks and the jets. Like it was like they were against each other. That's what I remember from snowboarding. And it turns out that that's pretty accurate because there was a big divide and there remains a big divide between skiers and ski resorts and snowboarders. You know, by the time ski resorts started to allow snow snowboarders there and they were really, really taking off was when Craig Kelly, who's one of the most famous snowboarders, was sponsored by Burton Snowboards and they really, really started to get a lot of traction and Burton was the only way to go. Eventually, these ski companies came around and were able to make cheaper snowboards, but they really didn't have the clout. They didn't have the cultural following. They didn't have the respect of the youth to be able to actually compete with Burton Snowboards at that point because they've been there from the grassroots roots and they really built the company and the idea of snowboarding to begin with. Jake puts it really, really great in the podcast. He says, you know, they the ski companies and the ski resorts really saw snowboarding is more of a fly on the windshield um, rather than a threat. But then, you know, they became, instead of a fly on the windshield, to a threat, to a threat to their business and, and to the ski resorts in general and to the sport. Surprise, in 1998, the Olympics decides to make snowboarding an official Olympic sport. And this isn't because Jay Carpenter did anything special at all. This is actually just because out of nowhere, they decide that they're going to have it as a sport. And it's not like they notified him or anything. He said that it was a bit like finding out, you know, your professional ball player and you find out you're being traded, you know, in the paper. He had no idea it was coming and no preparation for it. Nobody reached out to him about the sport. Nobody reached out to him about the boards. And when he got there to the actual Olympic Games, they didn't have it spelled correctly on the signs. It was spelled without a W which is hilarious also. I think what's really funny about that too is it's such a disruptive, snowboarding was such a disruptive event, such a disruptive business, and it's still true today. The businesses that have been in business for the longest amount of time are so resistant to change, but when they see something's marketable, they want to just jump on the bad wagon and do whatever they can with it. It's sort of like, I don't know, if Doritos starts to put out a green energy drink or something like this, it's one of those sort of like trader moves. I think it's it's really quite quite funny and it tells a lot it tells us a lot about the way businesses are built and about people the way people react and respond and it makes me think that you can be a lot more fearless than you might assume you know these big businesses ski resorts ski companies in his case could be very intimidating and make a lot of people want to hold back from doing exactly what he did and wanting to kind of you know weasel their way and wedge their way into a sport into a culture that wasn't ready to accept them at all So there you have it, the short version of how snowboarding came to be. I had no idea that happened in our lifetime and that it was built on a toy called the Snurfer. Now it's an Olympic sport. Jake talked about how the Olympic sport is still not handled quite the way that he would like it to be handled. It's not as respected the same way that skiers are respected or the ski sport is respected. He mentioned in the first Olympic Games they actually attended that there was a really bad rainstorm and they canceled all of the ski competitions, but they let the snowboarders go ahead and ride because they didn't care as much about their safety. That's something that he still continues to fight. He said that a lot of the events and the places that they hold the the competitions aren't always up to par and they're always, you know, sometimes they're a little bit sketchy. But that's a far different thing, you know, having to manage and having to worry about now. 
and something that he never saw coming. He never saw that, you know, the toy that he built. He always thought it would be a sport, but never an Olympic sport. He never thought Sean White would be on the cover of Rolling Stone twice. And Burden Snowboard, Burden is just so synonymously attached to snowboarding. You really don't think about one without the other. So you have all of that. You have all that backstory of how Jake Carpenter invented an Olympic sport. And flash forward to the end of the interview, and Guy Raz is talking to Jake about some illness that has taken him since his middle, early to middle age. He first had heart surgery. Then he had knee surgery in 2015. Then he got to testicular cancer, went through chemo after that. Then he had a pulmonary embolism on a plane, which pulmonary embolism, I didn't know this, had to look it up. Pulmonary embolism is a blood clot in your lungs, which anything that's happening on a plane is scary as hell, but especially that. Then, scariest of all, after he goes through all of those things, he gets diagnosed with Miller-Fisher syndrome, which I had also never heard about this. Let me tell you a little bit about it. This is what the doctors say to him. They're like, you have Miller-Fisher syndrome, and this is what's going to happen to you over the next three days. Tomorrow, you're not going to be able to swallow. By day two, the day after that, you're not going to be able to blink. And day three, you're not going to be able to move. And that is indeed what happened. Miller-Fisher syndrome basically makes you paralyzed. Everything on your inside is working, but you can't move your body. He ends up being in the ICU for six weeks. Now, bear in mind, most people aren't in the ICU for that long. It usually lasts an hour or a day. So to stay in the ICU for that long is incredibly scary. He says that he said that he thought he was going to die for sure. He said it's a lot like ALS where, you know, you can't move, but your your mind still works and you can still feel things, except for the onset was condensed, you know, in six weeks instead of taking years or, you know, however long it takes on ALS. Miller-Fisher syndrome sounds like about the worst thing that could possibly happen to you, especially if you're an active guy, but especially if you're any person on the planet. He talks about how his wife would come and stretch him every single night and he could feel that. And she started telling him that he was getting he was getting better and and he was getting better and he noticed in physical therapy that he started to to get better and to be able to build his strength up again. Guy Raz asked him at the end of this interview also, you know, how that changed him and how he felt going through all of that and you know what a difference it made for the work that he does and how he how he supports and is involved in his company. You know, a lot of people have these big experiences, these traumas, these illnesses, and they come away with a new direction um, or some new way of life, a new philosophy, so to speak. And Jake's answer, I thought, was was really great and really helpful. And what I want to close with, his answer was that he learned to never take his family for granted anymore. He learned that he was taking them for granted far more than he realized. And he also learned to live in the moment more than ever before that you only have the moment that you're in and to be thankful for that. And at the end of the day, you know, when he was lying there in the ICU, he didn't give a fuck about all the burden stuff. He said, that was the last thing from my mind. It didn't matter to me at all. What mattered to me was my family. What mattered was the time that I had with them. And for so many people, it takes exactly this experience for them to have that understanding. And I really struggle with that, which is why I bring it up, because so much of my life is really rooted in what I've done and the work that I've done and what I can put on my resume and my LinkedIn, what I can say to people when they ask me, oh, what do you do? It's really easy for me to get caught up in that when at the end of the day, I know on my tombstone's not going to read Amber, podcast host, Amber, product manager, Amber, director, executive, whatever. And even if you've done something so big as to invent an Olympic sport, or even if I've reached my my biggest dreams and my highest hope for myself, 
those two things are never able to be reproduced. Those, your family, your loved ones, and the time that you have with them is still the most important thing. That's incredibly humbling. And when you are having a hard time and you need to hear a good origin story because you need to have roots and you need to feel like you have direction and someone has been here before, I think that that's really, really helpful because we put a lot of, our, a lot of stress on ourselves, especially in America, to do a lot of work and good work and work, 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 because otherwise you don't deserve anything. And I am working hard to actively get away from that school of thought because I find it to be very, very hurtful and it's difficult for me to manage in a productive way. And that's why I wanted to bring up this story today. Jake Carpenter. Jake Burton Carpenter. I think there are two important takeaways that you can you can take away from this story. Number one is do what you loved as a kid, even if it's not something you do for your job. It's something that you can do in your free time. You know, it's interesting that the older I get and the more I'm forced to think about this, the more I actually actively start to pursue the things and realizing that I, I'm doing now and loving my life now so much because it's the same thing that I was doing as a kid, like entertaining and talking to people. I put on shows for my parents and my family at least three, four times a week. I think that's really, really important. And oftentimes we're working our damn asses off, so we we don't have time to figure out whatever that is. So that's number one. Do what you love doing as a kid, even if it's only a little bit. You don't get to do it all the time. And then number two is don't take your loved ones or the time that you have with them for granted. So much of our lives is about where we work and what we do, what we acquire, and how much money we have, what car we drive, where we live, where our house is, blah, blah, blah. It's really nice to have these reminders that even if you're the best of the best, ultimately that's all that it's about. I, I often need reminders too to be in the present moment. So this will help me out as well. And that's the goal. Just want to do more good for more people. Most of the time. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening. You can find all of the show notes at mytalkingdollars.com. You can contact me there, send me a note, send me a gift, let me know how you're doing. And also, please, if you would be so kind to subscribe, rate, leave me a review, tell your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. I realized I promised you guys I was going to recommend podcasts, and I'm still going to do that. But I really want to close the show with something that I just recommend in general. And I recommend in general wet wipes. I know a lot of people are still using toilet paper, and I just really think it's time that we evolved a little bit. And everyone deserves wet wipes. They're not just for babies, and they make them flushable now. You should definitely give it a whirl, especially if you're a lady. And if you're also a lady, you should also be using pH wash for your vagina when you wash it because it makes it a lot more healthy. I learned that recently from Amber Rose. So I'm just paying it forward. So here's to healthy, clean vaginas. Love you. Thanks. Bye.